Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Trump's excuse today, you should never have believed me in the first place. The lead starts right now. The latest ruling against Donald Trump gets at the core of his entire identity. A judge finding him liable for fraud, ruling his real estate empire was built on a lie. Trump responds this morning on social media, noting a clause saying that nothing in his financial statements should be accepted as fact. In other words, I told you I was lying, people. And new bank records in Hunter Biden's criminal case, including wire transfers from China. As House Republicans move forward with an impeachment inquiry and try, try to connect President Biden to his son's activities. Plus, formerly AWOL U.S. soldier Travis King back in American custody. Just why did he run across the DMZ into North Korea? And did the U.S. cut some sort of deal with the communist nation to bring him back? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with our law and justice lead. Donald Trump is set to go on trial on Monday, but I'm not talking about any of the four criminal cases he's facing, the 91 criminal charges laid out in those four indictments. I'm not, not talking about the Manhattan District Attorney's case about hush money paid to a porn star. I'm not talking about the special counsel's case in Florida about Trump's handling of classified documents. I'm not talking about the special counsel's case in D.C. about Trump attempting to subvert the Constitution by trying to overturn the election. I'm not talking about the case down in Fulton County, Georgia, about Trump trying to allegedly steal the state's electoral votes. Nor, by the way, am I talking about the civil defamation case brought by E. Jean Carroll, who, who already won a sexual assault and defamation case against Mr. Trump. No, no, no. I'm talking about the New York Attorney General's civil case against Trump. It's a legal blow against him that takes aim both at the former president's legacy and, frankly, his wallet. Today, New York Judge Arthur Ingeron announced the civil case against Trump, his adult sons, and the Trump Organization. He said it will move forward on Monday. This is the same judge who just yesterday ruled that Donald Trump, Eric Trump, and Donald Trump Jr. are liable for fraud. The judge said they repeatedly lied about how much their properties are worth. They did that in order to get more loans, he said. The judge also canceled the Trump Organization's business certification, what some legal experts refer to as the corporate death penalty. Now, 
the former president who has spent decades bragging about his wealth and building a persona of an ultra-accomplished real estate tycoon, a persona that that helped propel him to a top-rated network TV show and then, of course, to the presidency, he will see some of that same fortune put in the hands of a New York jury. The state's attorney general is seeking $250 million in damages and a ban on the Trumps ever doing business in New York ever again. Now, Trump's excuse on social media this morning, as I alluded to earlier, is this, quote, there is a powerful disclaimer clause on the first pages of the financial statements. It states that nothing in the financial statement should be accepted as fact. This is what seems an open admission of misrepresentation, though assuredly stronger defenses for Mr. Trump and his family are to come. CNN's Bryn Gingras starts off our coverage today with a closer look at how prosecutors say a network of lies help the Trumps build their wealth and their reputations. The Trump empire. You're fired. Which Americans binged in the hit show The Apprentice. I've been successful in every business I've been in. Helped catapult Donald Trump to political stardom. Congratulations, Mr. President. And the presidency may not be all it seemed. According to a ruling by a New York judge Tuesday, Donald Trump committed fraud for years. The ruling largely siding with New York Attorney General Letitia James. Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat the system thereby cheating all of us. She brought a civil lawsuit against Trump, his sons, and the Trump Organization in 2022. The judge finding they inflated the value of Trump properties, golf courses, hotels, and homes to secure loans, ultimately building their fortune. Take the Trump triplex apartment in New York City. The former president noted in financial statements that it's three times bigger in size than it actually is creating an overvaluation up to $207 million, according to the judge. Mar-a-Lago found to be inflated by more than half a billion dollars. A discrepancy of this order of magnified by a real estate developer sizing up his own living space of decades can only be considered fraud, the judge wrote, adding the Trumps are living in a fantasy world, not the real world. It is a sledgehammer to Trump and the entire organization in New York. And now Trump's New York empire will likely shrink. The judge canceling the Trump organization's business certification and assigning an independent party to dissolve entities like the tower at 40 Wall Street in New York City and a family compound in Westchester County. How that process will play out is still being determined by the court and could take some time. He is in a world of hurt on the business side, stronger so far than anything that's happened on the criminal side. Trump lashed out on Truth Social, saying it is a great company that has been slandered and maligned by this politically motivated witch hunt. He's appealing the ruling. For James, it's a win on one claim of several filed in the suit, paving the way for the Trumps to possibly owe the state big bucks. 
Now, the AG is asking for a quarter billion dollars with this suit and for the Trumps to never do business again in New York. If that will happen, it's really going to be up to a judge in this trial, which is going to dissect more financial filings. And like you said, Jake, is expected to start next week. However, there could be a hiccup in this because there is an appeal currently on the books right now that a judge is expected to rule on, which could delay the start of this civil trial. So we'll keep an eye out for that. Jake. All right, Brent. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss here in studio CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel, and up in New York, former federal prosecutor uh, Ellie Honig. Ellie, we're seeing Trump's attempted defense today on Truth Social, where he wrote in part that he, quote, could not have defrauded the banks who all made money and were all paid back or are current with no defaults or any other problem, unquote. If all the banks were paid back, what Trump owed plus interest, does he have a point or, or no? Legally, no here, Jake. It's important to understand, first of all, this is a civil lawsuit. The count on which the judge has ruled in favor of the attorney general here does not require any showing of loss to any particular party. This is a very favorable rule to the attorney general. This is a very favorable rule to plaintiffs. As long as the attorney general can show that the defendant here, the Trump organization, engaged in fraud and got money they weren't entitled to as a result, then that's good enough to make the claim out. And that's what the judge held here. There are six other counts where the AG is going to have to show what we call some sort of materiality, some sort of loss. But for the one count that the judge has already ruled in favor of the AG, whether anyone lost money or not does not matter. And, and Jamie, the four other indictments and the 91 criminal charges aside, this is a civil case, but you think it, it might hit a little different for Trump, this New York civil case. First of all, let's just put it out there. This is triggering Donald Trump like nothing else. Yeah, we it, see the reaction on, on Truth Social. It, it goes to the heart of what he cares about, which is his image, his brand, the notion that he's the best. Michael Cohen, his former lawyer, uh, once told me, I think it was last year, the way to get to, as he calls him, Donald, is not these criminal cases. That's not what's going to bother him. It's going to be going after property, business, money. The question is, with his supporters, who seem not to be bothered by the criminal cases, will the fact that the image of being the best, that this is in effect fraud, will that have a difference with his supporters? No. That's my prediction. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Ellie, Trump went on to claim on Truth Social that Mar-a-Lago is worth 100 times more than what the judge said it's worth. Um, isn't that the kind of claim that's at the heart of this entire civil case? And isn't that just demonstrably provable one way or the other? Yes, this is the problem itself. Donald Trump sort of nicely illustrates it in his truth socials today. The judge points out in the ruling, the county assessor down in Florida, where Mar-a-Lago is located, assessed the value of the property of Mar-a-Lago at around $20 million. Donald Trump, when it came down time to put in for bank loans, assessed it on his own as being worth $500 million. That's 20, 25 times more. And what the judge says in this ruling is, yes, there is some room for subjectivity when it comes to assessments, but there's not a total free-for-all here. You don't get to just fabricate numbers that are 20, 25 times greater. And Donald Trump does just that in his defensive truth social post. He's sort of making the AG's case for her. And, and uh, Jamie, Trump launched his 2016 presidential campaign at Trump Tower. Uh, and now he might lose the building. I mean, we don't know that that's actually going to happen, but that's a risk. Um, he rose to political power on this perception uh, that he was this 
magnate, that he was this, you know, huge colossus. Do you think his base, well, how do you think his base will see it? Well, you know, we, we just have discussed, does it, does it make a difference? But, but I think, remember yesterday, you and I were discussing, you did this interview with Cassidy Hutchinson. And one of the quotes was that he admitted he lost. She heard him say that to Mark and Meadows. And that was embarrassing. That's the point. This is embarrassing for Donald Trump. The question is, will it cut through to that base that seems willing to stick with him? And, and when I talk to his supporters, they always make sort of the same excuse, explanation. They're out to get him. Yeah, they're out to get him. Yeah. Ellie, also on Truth Social, we should know Trump wrote about the judge, quote, this political hack judge, and then he went on to talk about the uh, undervaluing of his properties, this political hack judge must be stopped. Um, could Trump face any legal actions for posting things like that? I mean, I could see how the judge might, might regard that as a threat. Well, Jake, so that's exactly the line. A person, any party in a criminal or civil case is entitled to criticize the other party, is entitled to criticize the judge. But the line is exactly where you just said, does it cross over into being a threat? And that language must be stopped is what jumped out to me. That's different than must be reversed on appeal. Must be stopped is perhaps intentionally vague and open to interpretation. So I think the judge may want to take a look at that, perhaps impose some sort of order prohibiting that type of speech and perhaps imposing sanctions if Donald Trump continues to do this, as he surely will. All right, Ellie Honig and Jamie Gangel, thanks to both. You appreciate it. There is movement late today in the funding fight. A new proposal aims to prevent a government shutdown that could be just three days, seven hours, 46 minutes and 27 seconds away. But who's counting? Will House Republicans get on board? Might we see a deal before a shutdown goes into effect Sunday morning? I'm going to speak with a Republican and a Democrat about what's realistic. Stay with us. In our politics lead, in just days, hundreds of thousands of Americans could stop receiving their paychecks, though not, of course, members of Congress, including those who refuse to come to the table and try to achieve a compromise as the country is four days away from a possible government shutdown. This could impact Americans' paychecks, but also safety at the border and airport travel as TSA agents and air traffic controllers could be among the furloughed workers. Food safety, as food inspections might be delayed, and museums and national parks could be closed. CNN's Manu Raju joins us now from Capitol Hill. And Manu, House Republicans have been pushing to include more border funding in the spending bill. There's obviously uh, a crisis at the border. Where do things stand right now? Yeah, there is a collision course also between the House and the Senate, and it's unclear how this will be resolved before the Saturday 11.59 p.m. deadline to avoid a government shutdown. The House Republicans and Senate Republicans are in a different position on how to deal with this on the leadership side. There's also moderates in the House GOP who are pointing fingers at the conservative hardliners. Those hardliners are refusing to allow for a short-term spending bill to be approved that Speaker McCarthy is trying to push through that would include some border security money at the moment. Speaker McCarthy does not have the votes, but Speaker McCarthy is also opposed to what the Senate is planning to move forward with. That is a plan that Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, cut with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer that would extend government funding till mid-November to include aid to Ukraine, about $6 billion, disaster relief as well. It does not have money for the border. Those are things that the House Republicans say that they will not move forward with unless Ukraine is pulled out of it, unless they add border security money. So at the moment, there is an impasse. And there's also concerns within the Senate, top Senate Republicans that Speaker 
Speaker McCarthy himself backed away from a funding deal that he cut earlier this summer to raise the national debt limit that set spending levels. And as a result of that decision, they say has contributed to the mess that they find themselves in, all raising questions about whether they can avoid a shutdown. But some say a shutdown is inevitable. At the end of the day, leadership procrastinated and created a mess. Now we got to find our way through it. And if that means staying a couple extra weeks with the shutdown, that's fine. The tactic to take to say, hey, I want to shut the damn thing down, because um, it, it literally benefits. No, and it especially doesn't benefit the conservative platform. This is, this is not, uh, you know, uh, paralleling or, or, or supporting a conservative platform by any stretch of the imagination. Did you say, if you make a deal, you got to stick to the deal. And uh, I understand that the Speaker has a lot of pressures on him, so I don't want to judge why he's doing what he's doing, but I think if we'd stuck with the original deal, would, but that was going to be impossible too from what, what we hear from the House. So at the moment, Speaker McCarthy is planning to move forward with that Republican plan to keep the government open on Friday. But he, Jake, he does not have the votes to move forward because a number of those hardline members told me that they just will not vote for a short-term bill no matter what is included in it. So raising questions about how this, this will get resolved as the Senate moves forward with its plan that could stretch into the weekend, pushing it right up into that deadline to avoid a shutdown. Yeah, and all the while hovering over his head like the sword of Damocles, Republican Congressman Matt Gates is threatening to oust Speaker McCarthy, or at least attempt to do so, if he, if McCarthy turns to the House Democrats to try to work with them uh, in order to get help to pass a government spending bill. Yeah, and that is one thing that Gates has been threatening for some time. But I've talked to other members who are aligned with Congressman Gates who agree with him and say that if, if McCarthy does cut a deal with Democrats or move forward with a bill that has the support of a majority of Democrats, that would be enough to push him out of the speakership, they say. And McCarthy, I've asked him about this a number of times. He claims that he is not considering that. That is not part of his calculation. He's simply trying to get a conservative outcome and bolster the House GOP negotiating position here. But a lot of people expect that this threat that has been waged by Gates over and over again is playing into this this strategy to the speaker at the moment, which is trying to move things along party lines, but he doesn't have the votes yet, Jake. All right, Manu Raju, thank you so much. Let's bring in Republican Congressman August Fluger uh, from Texas. Uh, Congressman, this afternoon, Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, a Republican, told CNN that he understands the House Republicans push for border funding, but he can't promise that it's going to make it into the short-term stopgap bill. But he added that long-term funding will, will not happen without addressing the border, that it will be in the long-term uh, spending bill. Is that good enough for you? Will you uh, consider the, the bill that the, that the Senate has come together to do with the promise from Lindsey Graham that the border funding will be in the long-term bill? Well, Jake, thanks for having me on. And as we've seen the Senate version, it's a non-starter right now. Um, and I'd go a step further uh, than the senator and say, you know, for House Republicans and for especially Texans, um, we, we need both short-term and long-term funding. This issue has gone on far too long. You have 2.3 plus million illegal uh, immigrants who have come into this country this year. The tragedies that you have from fentanyl deaths, the 150 people that have matched the terror watch list. Uh, and the list goes on and on and on with the tragedies that have occurred because of the cartels owning the southern border. So. It's enough is enough. Um, and I think this is a winning issue, quite frankly, not just for Republicans, but for Democrats alike. It's a winning issue for America. Enough is enough. We have to secure the border. Uh, Senator Sinema, um, the I think she's an independent uh, from Arizona, uh, is working to add border security funding for the short term stopgap bill. Uh, if she does that, would you consider supporting that bill? 
Well, we haven't seen that, but we have our own version, which basically is HR2. It's, it's a pretty comprehensive um, border security bill that we passed earlier this year, and we intend to send that over to the Senate. And then at that point in time, you know, I'm glad to see people like Senator Sinema uh, and others who are working on this issue because they get it. Arizona gets it. Arizona and Texas get it because we're bearing the brunt of this. But when you see Democrat governors uh, and mayors throughout the United States reacting and declaring emergencies like, like was done in Massachusetts, you know that this issue has hit every single state. And now it's up to those in Texas and Arizona and other states to really lead on this issue, which is what we're doing. Bigger picture when it comes to governing, Republicans control the House of Representatives and your, your conference is unable to come to a consensus on a government spending bill. What do you say to someone who says your party doesn't have the ability to govern, at least based on what House Republicans are doing right now? Well, I mean, let's just look at the track record. We've, we've passed, you know, an incredible portfolio of legislation. We have governed all the way uh, from the very first day of Speaker McCarthy leading, and, and we'll continue to govern. Yes, we're going through uh, some challenges and bumps, but uh, government, you know, needs the transparent debate. We need to be able to show the American people what we're talking about. We don't always agree, but at the end of the day, I do think that we will pass good legislation. We, sh we will keep the government open. We should keep the government open. But included in that is the necessity for the Biden administration to reverse course on their failed policies starting on day one from the administration. One of the challenges here on the border issue, and we should note you visited uh, the border earlier this week, Venezuelans make up a large portion of the, of the migrants crossing the border right now. And this is important to note because it's more difficult for the U.S. to deport Venezuelans because A, they are fleeing a socialist hellhole, and B, the U.S. has really horrible diplomatic relations with Venezuela. So they can't just be deported easily back to Venezuela. Uh, it complicates the whole thing. What, what do you suppose we do with the Venezuelan migrants? Well, great point. Um, you know, the pictures that you just showed, that, that's me and Eagle Pass seeing almost 11,000 people per day over the last few days coming in. They are a lot of Venezuelans that come into the country. Um, but this is why Remain in Mexico was such an important piece of the policy from the previous administration. It's why we need to go right back to that. Because other countries along the way, when you go through three or four countries and then you say, well, we're, we're not going to stop here, we're going to keep going, um, that, that really breaks the norms worldwide of the immigration requirements. So, yes, it is difficult to deport people back to Venezuela, but every Border Patrol agent will tell you that there are no consequences. And without those consequences, then people are going to continue to come at record numbers. And by the way, Border Patrol morale is at the lowest point that it's ever been, only 10% are actually in the field. The rest are processing and administering over 2.3 million people this year. You think it's bad now, Border Patrol morale? Wait till there's a government shutdown and, and they stop getting paid. A congressional well, report that's... found that during the last government shutdown in 2019, border security severely deteriorated as routine maintenance and repairs of fences, walls, gates, roads made it even more dangerous for the agents on the ground doing this already dangerous job that must concern you. You know, it does. And, and I'm a military veteran myself, two plus decades in the Air Force. I've been right there in their shoes doing the national security mission when there was a shutdown. We, we want to avoid that. And we have an answer to that. And that's why we're urging all of our colleagues on both sides of the aisle, let's come together and let's figure this out. But enough is enough. The border security 
it's an abysmal failure. Uh, some have said and suggested that this would be a win for Biden. Fine. If we shut the border down and we get the chaos stopped and the fentanyl deaths stopped, then I'm fine with that because it's good for America. Republican Congressman August Pfluger of Texas, always good to see you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jake. Despite the infighting among House Republicans, Democrats controlled the Senate and Democrats controlled the White House. Could that party do more to stop a shutdown that seems even more likely by the hour? Well, we're going to talk to a Democrat next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We're back with even more on the looming government shutdown. I just spoke with Republican Congressman August Pfluger of Texas, who told me that he will not support any bill to fund the government unless it contains additional funding for border security for how the Democrats feel about the impending shutdown, I'd like to bring in Democratic Congresswoman Ayanna Presley from the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Congresswoman, uh, Speaker McCarthy has been dodging questions on whether or not he would turn to Democrats to try to gain enough support to pass his own continuing resolution. Um, do you see a scenario in which House Democrats would work with McCarthy on this to try to keep the government open? You know, it's shameful, Jake, that we're in this position at all. Um, We began the 118th uh, Congress with chaos. We are still in chaos. Uh, McCarthy cannot get his conference together, uh, nor can he advance his harmful and unpopular agenda. Uh, You know, to date, what what do we have here? Uh, A baseless impeachment, uh, a march towards a nationwide ban on abortion, uh, banning books, uh, completely out of step with the American people. The Democrats um, are ready. Uh, we've been ready. We are united and we're focused on the people. We're ready to keep the government open and to maintain essential uh, services. Congressman Gates uh, of Florida says if McCarthy does turn to Democrats for support on a funding bill, he would introduce a motion to vacate the speakership. Um, and we heard from Congressman Fluger uh, that he thinks other Republicans would join Gates in that if uh, McCarthy tries to cut a deal with Democrats. Um, if that were to happen, whom would you vote for for speaker? Jake, you know, <laughs> right now, uh, 
the, the speaker that I listen to are the constituents in the Massachusetts 7th Congressional District who stand to be uh, deeply harmed uh, by a shutdown, which it does appear that one is imminent. And it will be deeply consequential. Uh, we're talking about uh, Social Security and Medicare uh, being compromised. We're talking about food being taken out of the mouths of women and children in my district, as much as 125,000 uh, families. Uh, could be impacted. We're talking about 7,000 federal government and contract workers in my district. We're talking about uh, states not getting critical disaster relief funds. Uh, So uh, that's who I'm answering to. Uh, That's why uh, I remain ready and, and continue to center the people do I, I hope that we will not be in a shutdown. If we are in a shutdown, uh, please know that we are in a shutdown because of the Republicans. The Democrats yeah. have been at the table and been ready. Yeah, but you might actually be given an, an opportunity where you get to vote for keeping Speaker McCarthy as leader or there would be ultimate, you know, there would be chaos. You might be asked to vote for Jim Jordan. I mean, it might actually be one of these scenarios. Uh, would you make up time yeah. to vote? Yeah, I'll make a decision when it's time to vote, but it is shameful that we are in this position at all. And it's more of the same uh, with the Republican majority, just uh, uh, chaos. Um, and, and I would argue uh, cluelessness about what the American people really need and want us to be focused on, which is governance and keeping the government open and providing these essential services. So Republicans' biggest criticism of the bipartisan Senate spending bill this compromise that's being worked over on the other side of Capitol Hill is that it does not contain additional funding for border security. Uh, Right now, the the U.S. is facing uh, a crisis at the border and this historic wave of Venezuelan migrants crossing into the U.S. Uh, The U.S. cannot deport most of them or any of them, really, because of the frosty diplomatic relations with Venezuela. More than 7.7 million people have fled Venezuela. There's no sign this is slowing down. Um, do you agree that something needs to be done uh, about our border that is just not sustainable? I mean, we see, uh, you know, these these governors and I'm, I'm sure you disapprove of the tactic, but they're sending migrants into places like Massachusetts, like New York, not like California. And these cities are having trouble uh, keeping up. The Republican governors say things like we're just giving you a taste of what we have to deal with. Well, I certainly disagree with uh, any people and certainly our most vulnerable uh, who are fleeing a great destabilization and violence uh, and and corruption uh, from being used as political pawns. Uh, No doubt about it. uh, Our our border is secure and we're in the midst of a humanitarian crisis and we have to fix a broken system. You think it is secure? You think the border is secure or it is not secure? I believe that we are in the midst of a humanitarian crisis and there needs to be federal investment to support those migrant families. And I work with a number of those community-based organizations on the ground and they need more support. They need more federal support. This is a humanitarian crisis and it's the consequence of a number of longstanding uh, broken policies uh, that, um, you know, are very consequential for asylum seekers, uh, TPS holders and DACA recipients uh, writ large. But that is a conversation for another day. I, I, don't, I don't disagree with, with you, this being a humanitarian crisis at all, but just to get some clarity on this, and, and sure, that's a conversation for another day, but are, do you think that the border is secure? I just, do, is that what you said? Yes, the border is secure. And we're in the midst of a humanitarian crisis that has been created by a broken system. 
And in the meantime, uh, we need federal investment to support uh, my constituents and those who call the MA 7th home writ large, which is why we need to prevent a government shutdown. Um, I want to center the humanity, uh, the dignity, the safety, and the needs of everyone, which is why we should not have a government shutdown. It will be deeply consequential. It will create a dire situation for families, um, many that are already struggling. But if you have millions of undocumented migrants coming into the country, how is the border secure? Jake, this is not a new crisis. Um, it does require uh, more political will and, uh, and commitment. Uh, it is a humanitarian crisis. We should treat it as such. And again, representing one of the most uh, diverse uh, constituencies in the country. And in fact, I chair the House Haiti Caucus. I represent the third largest Haitian diaspora uh, in the country. And what I see on the ground is uh, community-based organizations uh, and municipalities who, who need federal support. I'm not disagreeing with anything you're saying, except for the idea that the border is secure. I mean, if you have people crossing the border, it's just by definition not secure. If you have people coming to the United States, in fact, I mean, one of the arguments being made, and I think it's an argument worth considering, is that because our border is so porous, millions of people make this very unsafe journey. Millions of people give money to people who prey on them, coyotes, and take them on these journeys to cross into the United States, preying on them, vulnerable people. And that's because the border is not secure. Because it is not secure, they go on this journey. And one of the arguments that is made, and maybe you disagree with it, is that the border should be secure so as to discourage people from making this journey. Um, so that if people want to try to come to the United States and declare asylum and seek asylum, they go through the proper corridors uh, and not just try to cross illegally. I, but it just seems like just such a, a refusal to acknowledge reality just to say that the border is secure when we all know millions of people are crossing the border illegally every year. Jake, and, and that is a consequence of a, a number of things. Um, we have uh, climate refugees, people that have been disabled in, in regions that are destabilized um, by extreme weather events. Sure. We have people that are violence and corruption. Yep. Uh, and so we just have to acknowledge why someone would leave um, their native uh, country and their family and risk so much. It is 100%. because they are in an yeah. asylum is a human right. And so we must do better and more by TPS holders, by DACA recipients and asylum seekers. And we must do more and better by those who already call this country home, who stand to really struggle if there is a Republican government shutdown that could have been avoided if the Republicans knew how to govern. But instead, um, they uh, lead from a place of contempt callousness and cluelessness, and they continue to play to the most extreme parts of their base, political gamesmanship, playing with people's lives. And I'm not here for it. And that is also why, given how many people are struggling, I'm calling on the to not resume a student loan payments October 1st if we are in a government shutdown. Okay. It sounds like in there, you acknowledged that there are millions of people crossing the border illegally 
which would mean that the border is not secure. But um, I, I mean, I don't disagree with any of the points you made about these people are trying to seek better lives and they're escaping all sorts of horrible things. But would you grant me the point that the border is not secure? Jake, that is a conversation for another day. Right now, I'm squarely focused on preventing a government shutdown. And if there is one, we're the All right. Democratic Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. Thanks so much. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back with our, yeah, 2024 music. We're back with our 2024 lead. Let's all dive straight into all of today's major political headlines with Republican pollster and, truth be told, one of my favorite guests, Kristen Soltis-Anderson. Um, I'm sorry, I hope I'm not talking out of school. Uh, let's start with the shutdown. What are you hearing from Republican voters? Do they feel like a shutdown affects them? Who will they blame? Do they care? So a lot of voters don't have much recollection of previous shutdowns. And so really, if a shutdown is short, many voters won't really take it into consideration. If a shutdown is long, it can have consequences. And normally those consequences are negative for the party that is in charge. What Republicans are banking on this time is that they won't bear too much of the blame, or rather, they'll be viewed as having a just cause in this case on issues like immigration, for instance. Back the last time the government shut down, voters actually slightly preferred Democrats on issues like immigration. Today, Republicans have a huge advantage on that issue in CNN polling. So I think Republicans feel like they're in a stronger position now to extract concessions. The other problem is Republicans are not all united about what they want out of this shutdown. So let's turn to the debate that's happening tonight. Trump is once again the absent elephant in the room. So the other seven candidates on the stage, it's really their their time to shine for second place. What message do you think will resonate the most among Republican voters? I think Republican voters who watch this debate are going to be the ones looking for an alternative to Trump. They're going to want to see someone who can really beat Joe Biden. We've seen in a lot of polls lately that Nikki Haley is looking the strongest as a contender against Biden. But right now, Trump is still the big thing. And I think if these candidates tonight can't answer the question, if you like Donald Trump so much, why should we vote for you instead? If they can't answer that question well, this is going to be Trump's thing to just run with. So despite his, let's talk about Trump, because despite all the growing legal issues and I, it's considerable. So you have to take at least five minutes to explain them to the to the folks at home. Despite that, in the latest CNN poll of polls, Trump leads DeSantis, who's next in line, by 43 points. Yes. Uh, it seems like a lot. In 2007, at this time, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had a remarkable lead over then-Senator Barack Obama. Uh, in October 2007, she led Obama by 30 percentage points. But of course, Obama you know, ended up winning. So that's 30 compared to 43 for Trump right now. Do you think it is, and don't get me like in the, in the realm of possible, obviously anything's possible, but what are the odds that somebody other than Trump gets the nomination? And let's exclude, you know, death or prison as, or, or you know, meteors. But like, sure. what are the, I mean, like, what is it, one in 20? Like, Very low. Maybe not quite one in 20, but one in 10. I'd yeah. be comfortable going there. I mean, the problem right now is that for a lot of Republicans you, who don't want Trump to be the nominee, you hear this talk like you heard in 2016, right? Ah, oh, we just need the field to shrink down. If it was just Trump head to head with Nikki Haley, Trump head to head with Ron DeSantis, maybe there'd be a chance. But Trump's lead right now is so large and voters on the Republican side think that Trump would be formidable against Biden. They don't see any reason at this point to change who the captain of their team is. And until that dynamic changes or unless something dramatic happens, 
meteor, legal or otherwise, it seems like it's really Trump's race to lose. All right. Mr. Salty Sanderson, good to see you as always. Thanks so much. Many of us woke up to huge news this morning. American soldier Travis King released by North Korea. What CNN is learning about how this all went down. That's next. Our world lead, an extreme example of a young man seemingly trying to run from his problems. Today, North Korea expelled AWOL U.S. Army Private Travis King. The 23-year-old junior soldier was stationed in South Korea before he willingly crossed over the demilitarized zone, or DMZ, two months ago. King entered North Korea the day before he was supposed to be on a plane back to Texas to be kicked out of the U.S. Army over assault charges in South Korea. CNN's Alex Marquardt reports on what's next for King as the young soldier returns home, where he will likely finally have to face the music. Private Travis King now on his way home after bolting across the heavily guarded border into North Korea back in July, which U.S. officials say he did willfully and without authorization. Now they will hopefully learn what drove Private King's dramatic and scary escapade, as well as details on his more than two months in North Korean custody. U.S. officials say that since July, multiple countries have undertaken intense diplomacy to free King and that Sweden, which represents U.S. interests in North Korea, played a crucial role. We appreciate the professionalism of our diplomats who worked with their counterparts at the Department of Defense and coordinated with the governments of Sweden and the People's Republic of China. And we thank Sweden and the People's Republic of China for their assistance in facilitating that transfer. On Wednesday, North Korean state media suddenly announced that 23-year-old King would be expelled, following what they called an investigation, in which King supposedly admitted that he crossed into North Korea illegally. King was taken from North Korea to the Friendship Bridge with China in Dandong, where he was met by the American ambassador and defense attaché. From there, he flew to Shenyang in China and then on to the U.S. airbase, Osan, in South Korea, before flying back to the United States. Was there anything that the North Koreans asked for or received in exchange? Was there a trade at all? We did not give them anything. We made no concessions as a part of securing his return. Do you have any idea why they decided to suddenly expel him? I am going to follow my general here and not try to to get into the heads of foreign governments, and certainly not, not that one. King is said to be in good health, very happy to be free, and eager to see his family. A spokesman for his mother saying in a statement she, quote, will be forever grateful the United States Army and all its interagency partners for a job well done. King's family had previously said they didn't understand why King had done what he did. This is really, really hard on my mom, you know. That's her baby boy. His room is still in her house. When King fled from the airport in Seoul, South Korea, to the DMZ, he had been ordered back to Texas to face discipline after pleading guilty in South Korea to assault for which he was sentenced to 50 days of labor in South Korea. And Jake, uh, Private King is due to land in the coming hours in San Antonio, Texas. He will then go to the Brook Army Medical Center. That's the same medical facility where other returning U.S. prisoners have gone, including Trevor Reed and Brittany Griner. As for the questions about what consequences he may face, what kind of discipline, uh, whether it's a court martial for going AWOL or for trying to evade those disciplinary procedures, those questions uh, we are told by a senior administration official will be uh, addressed once King is back on solid footing after what this official called the reintegration process. Jake. All right. CNN's Alex Marquardt at the State Department for us. Thanks so much, Alex. Good to see you. 
Less than four months until the first contest in the 2024 race, but there is the critical moment for GOP candidates and voters happening this evening. We'll have more on that next. From executive producers Park Chan-wook and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, oh, Canada. The standing ovation that created scandal for our neighbors to the north. How a room full of Canadian lawmakers ended up giving a standing O for a Ukrainian veteran who, it turns out, fought for the wrong side during World War II. After it was pointed out the guy fought with the Nazis, there's major new international repercussions today, including an apology from Justin Trudeau. Plus, look at this video. A night of looting in Center City, Philadelphia. Shocking images of lawlessness, prompting even more serious questions about basic safety in our cities in the United States. And leading this hour, yes, the election music, you know I love it. A critical night in the Republican presidential race. Only seven will be allowed on the stage in this second debate instead of eight in the first round. Governor Asa Hutchinson, the one not making the cut tonight. Sorry, not Governor. The dominant candidate in this primary race also will not be on stage, Donald Trump, though that is voluntarily instead Mr. Trump going to Michigan with a message for union workers, though oddly he's chosen to do so at a non-union plant. We'll get to that later. But let's start with the debate. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is in Simi Valley, California, where Republican candidates will take the stage in just a few hours. Jeff, who made the stage and how critical of a night is this for candidates looking to break through, which is, to be honest, all of them? It is all of them, Jake, and it's a critical night for all seven of those candidates who will be on stage. At center stage, once again, is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, He also will be surrounded this time by former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, as well as Ohio entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and the rest of the field goes out on the stage from there. But yes, this is a scramble for second place, a race to be seen as the Trump alternative. There's no doubt. Uh, A lot has happened since that last debate in Milwaukee at the end of August. Certainly, there's a looming government shutdown. There is a massive uh, strike that is, uh, you know, potentially creating economic headwinds and waves in Michigan. Abortion policy is also much more front and center than it was even a month ago because of Donald Trump's own comments. So those are some of the new issues. But many of these candidates, many of these campaigns simply want to have this night without Donald Trump to make their case, to make their introduction directly to the voters, largely of Iowa, largely of New Hampshire, who are consuming a steady diet of Trump news. So they are trying to uh, sort of get beyond that to make their own cases here. Of course, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, we're told, is going to go directly after the former president. That, of course, has been the centerpiece of his campaign. But, Jake, what we're looking for here tonight are some of those new uh, cross currents. The race has changed a bit 
since that last debate. Nikki Haley has been on the rise, at least somewhat. The Florida governor certainly has high stakes here in terms of trying to hold his position as the leading alternative, if you will. And of course, former Vice President Mike Pence clearly also, he's on the end of the stage this time, still also trying to make his point as well and stay in this contest. As you said, Asa Hutchinson is not on the stage tonight, Jake. Seven are, but the next debate will not be until November. So this could be one of the biggest opportunities for all of these candidates to break through. So, Jeff, I know you remember the last time I believe there was uh, a Republican debate um, at the Reagan Library was uh, 2015. I got to moderate it for CNN. Uh, I talked about Reagan quite a bit. Uh, It was 2015. The Republican Party was very different than what it is today. Uh, How much is former President Reagan's legacy factoring into tonight, if at all? Jake, it's extraordinary to think of the changes just in eight short years. We do all remember that debate that you asked questions at, and the, uh, the Reagan legacy was front and center in all that. Well, Donald Trump was just beginning to commandeer the Republican Party. At that point, though, it was very much uncertain if he would win uh, the primaries, become the nominee. Of course, he did. So, so much has changed. But I'm told that several of the candidates are still going to uh, deploy at least the the legacy and the memory of Ronald Reagan, particularly on foreign policy. Look for former Vice President Mike Pence to invoke him, Nikki Haley as well. But Jake, it feels entirely different here this time when we think of the history of Ronald Reagan. We did see several of the candidates go and pay their respects to the former president, who of course is entombed here in Simi Valley. But beyond that, this clearly is the party of Donald Trump, whether or not he's here. Remember Reagan's uh, 11th commandment, thou shall not speak ill of thy fellow Republican. (laughs) Uh, Good times. Uh, Jeff Zellany, thanks so much. Let's go now to CNN's Kristen Holmes in Clinton Township, Michigan. That's where Donald Trump is going to be instead of the debate stage in California. Kristen, walk us through Mr. Trump's plans. Why did he decide on Michigan instead of the debate? Quick, this is the clearest signal we have had from the Trump campaign that they are looking ahead to the general election beyond these primaries. If they were still focusing solely on the primaries, we'd likely see him in South Carolina or Iowa or New Hampshire. But instead, he is giving a primetime address to working class voters in the swing state of Michigan. Now, a reminder, these voters and this state helped deliver him the White House in 2016, and it helped deliver President Biden the White House in 2020. And Trump wants to take some of those voters back. Now, obviously, we're in a very different scenario than we were in 2016 because Trump has a political record and one that union leaders have almost excoriated, calling pro-business, anti-worker, anti-union. But the Trump advisors tell me they believe they can drive a wedge between these union leaders and the rank and file members. And they certainly want to show that tonight. I just want to show you over my shoulder here. Donald Trump always won for optics. They are going to fill a pen that is flanking Donald Trump while he speaks tonight with union members who are in support of Trump. And of course, they are all going to be holding up signs that say union members in support of Trump. So clearly trying to give that visual there. We know that he's going to be focused a lot on the economy tonight. Big question, of course, is whether or not he can actually get these union members to vote for him in 2024. Trump is making a play for Michigan voters amid this auto workers strike, but but he's visiting a non-union plant. Uh, What's up with that? So the campaign will have you 
know that these parts that are made here are going to union shops, but it does appear that there's another reason why they chose this location. One of the things that Donald Trump has routinely hit Biden over is electric vehicles, and he's gotten bigger and bigger on it in recent weeks, essentially saying that it will kill American jobs, that all of the jobs are going to go overseas. Well, we heard from the president of Drake Enterprises where this event is located at tonight, who said on Fox News that if electric cars were to take over, he would be out of business and everyone here would be out of a job. So clearly some messaging there and a preview to what we're going to hear in his speech tonight. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN political commentator Ashley Allison, the former National Coalition's director for Biden-Harris 2020, and CNN political commentator Jonah Goldberg, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of uh, The Dispatch. Uh, what do you think uh, Ronald Reagan would make of today's GOP? Um, uh, he would be upset, I think. I think you can actually, if you listen very closely, you can hear his spinning right now. Um, and I, I think that, you know, I mean, you mentioned the 11th Commandment thing. I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, one of the reasons why he had the 11th Commandment was he didn't want to relitigate Watergate and Nixon, right? It was a way to sort of say, we're going to bring the party together. That, I think, I think if Trump were not on the scene, we'd be in an 11th Commandment mode because that's how you would get past Trump is by getting past Trump. But Trump is this creature that is not going to leave the scene voluntarily, and it makes it very difficult to have any sort of norms or standards about, about party unity or anything like that because he thinks he's more important than the party. There is something kind of Reagan-esque, though, going on with Trump right now is that in that I'm old enough to remember his uh, achievement in getting Reagan Democrats, these blue-collar industrial guys who normally would vote union, uh, and going for Reagan because of their belief in a strong foreign in, in other issues, strong foreign policy, strong economy, that sort of thing. Uh, and a lot of those guys just never came back mm -hmm. to the Democratic Party. Yeah, and I think that's why you see him in Michigan today, thinking that he can pull some of the UAW workers who are currently on strike to back to him if they voted for Joe Biden, knowing that Michigan is a, a strong battleground state. But the irony is, is that he's not even at a union plant. So how are you supporting workers that are in labor when you don't even go to a plant where they're actually working? And really, what is your policy behind workers' rights? Trump is not a pro-union president. The Republican Party is not traditionally a pro-worker party. So while some of those... Um, Reagan Democrats might be moving over to Donald Trump. I think the issues that are we're, we're seeing right now could keep them firmly in Biden's camp, particularly when you see how Joe Biden was historically the first president to ever go to a picket line yesterday and stood with workers. Yeah. And I think that is a really telling sign that they may be on the Biden camp for this election. So let's look at uh, let's look uh, at the debate uh, tonight. There's a new piece in Semaphore that suggests that this is do or die for Ron DeSantis, uh, who's still in the lead in several states and several polls. Um, but one Republican consultant backing DeSantis is quoted in this piece saying, if he doesn't do well here, in my opinion, he's got to drop out if he doesn't want to be uh, embarrassed. That might be a little premature. There hasn't even been one vote cast yet. But 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 what do you think? I mean, I, he hasn't it, it hasn't exactly been lightning in a bottle for him. No, and I don't want to go all fact checker on you, but he is in the lead for second. <laughs> in several polls. Excellent point. <laughs> yes, Excellent uh, point. Um, yeah, look, I mean, I think the problem for DeSantis is that he spent a lot of time uh, saying, wait till I run, wait till I announce, then I'll show you, wait till this, wait till that, wait till the first debate. 
And the problem is, is that he just hasn't had the pop. In fact, he's sort of the... He's, he's gone re- down in a lot He's of regressed points. to the, yeah. the mean more than anything else. And um, I think one of the problems that we get into here in Washington um, and a lot of the punditry is we can really only talk about what's legible, like what we what's visible to us from our perch. And so that means we talk about national polls, which I don't think matter very much. And we talk about debates, which I don't think matter all that much. DeSantis had a good debate, according to a lot of the focus groups and that kind of stuff, but he didn't take off after it. Nikki Haley had a good debate, and she did. I don't think it was necessarily because of the debate performance. I think it's because she's much better at retail politicking in places like New Hampshire and Iowa than DeSantis is. And that really matters in those first-in-the-nation races. And it just it seems like DeSantis had a campaign designed for the very online right. right? He even literally announced on Twitter, and that went great. Um, and it shows you that his his instincts were geared towards basically a Fox audience, a Twitter audience, and not the door-to-door glad-hatting audience that he needs to be good at. And I think that's what where, why he's suffering. Uh, the other argument one could make is that um, DeSantis is running to Trump's right, and there isn't a lot of room there, really. I mean, well, in terms of his support, there, there is actually some room there, but his supporters on his right are locked in on Trump, really. Right. And... Um, and Nikki Haley, in some ways, is kind of like leaning towards a general election already a little bit. Well, I think that's a smart strategy for her, particularly if she isn't going to aggressively criticize Trump, which many think those in the Republican field should do right now. DeSantis is, I think, definitely running to the right of Donald Trump because he is trying to be Trump 2.0. If you don't like this guy, if you don't like what happened on January 6th, we're not going to really talk about it. If you believe Donald Trump actually lost the election, I don't really want to talk about it in my campaign. But if you want the exact same policies, whether it's children, child separations, the culture wars, uh, I'm your guy. And I think Nikki Haley realizes by some of her answers that that's not going to play well in a general election. So you may fare well, perhaps in a Republican primary, but will that be an agenda that can beat Joe Biden based on the way the American people feel on those issues? No, it's not. Yeah, so I, I, I don't disagree with necessarily with any of that, but I do think the focus on issues, both in terms of like labor unions um, and also on the DeSantis 2.0 stuff, the real problem with the DeSantis 2.0 strategy is t- releasing 2.0 only works when people want to get rid of 1.0. Right. And 1.0 is just out there, right? Yeah. And I don't think that a lot, the voters that Trump is trying to go after tonight with the, with the Michigan speech, he's going to appeal to them. Yeah, he'll say things about union stuff and workers, but really... A lot of our politics now is becoming basically coded culture war stuff and right. issues. I don't think there are a lot of voters out there who are voting on issues. If they were, at some point they would be disappointed because Trump has changed his position on virtually all of the issues, and yet they stay with him. It's much more of a personality thing. So there are two independent voters that I'm going to run clips uh, from, two undecided voters. The first one is Cassidy Hutchinson, who I interviewed, <laughs> I interviewed yesterday, uh, and she was disappointed uh, that so few candidates said that they would not vote for Donald Trump uh, if he were a convicted felon. Uh, here's a little, the, the, the two were Chris Christie and Asa, Hutch, Asa Hutchinson, who's, who's, who didn't make the debate stage tonight. Here's a little bit of the, this, that part of the interview. I had a lot of hope with Nikki Haley. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that she had very intelligent and well-fleshed out answers on things. Um, even Mike Pence, thought, yeah, I was really disappointed when I saw Mike Pence raise his hand. So that's a Republican uh, who actually cares about democracy. Uh, and she's looking for a pro-democracy Republican. Now I'm going to play uh, Je- Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who talked to our own Casey Hunt on her um, CNN Max show. 
uh, I believe, and uh, he has not committed to voting for Biden. Let's run that sound. If the election were being held today, would you vote for Joe Biden for re-election? Well, I never thought about that because I have not gotten to that point yet. I think there's an awful lot to, to, to be sorted out before we so even you're not come saying down yes. to You're not saying who, yes, you would vote for him for re-election today? I, I'm not saying yes or no on this. I'm, I'm just saying that I'm looking at the state of my country, where I believe that we need to be. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, mean, like, I think he's a patriotic, decent guy. I don't think it's because he's looking at the state of the country. He's looking at the fact he's that he might run. Well, he's also looking from the fact that he comes from a state where he's the last elected Democrat. He will be the last elected Democrat. The state was the most pro-Trump state, I think, of any state in the union. And going out and... I think Wyoming. Okay, fair enough. But (laughs) going out and saying you're all in for Biden doesn't help him for either of those purposes, running as a third-party thing or for running for re-election in his own state. And so he's got to play coy. I don't think it's all that much more complicated than that. And Joe Biden, meanwhile, he does this pro-democracy thing. People might understand, not really fully understand why he does it. I think he does it for the Cassidy Hutchinson Republicans out there. Absolutely. I mean, after you look at someone like Cassidy, who really put it on the line by denouncing Trump and testifying in front of the January 6th committee, for Mike Pence, her former boss, not to even say I would not vote for Donald Trump after he certified the elections, sure, I'm, I, would, I was disappointed too. Um, and that's definitely who Joe Biden thinks he can bring over and keep in his column. Jonah, Ashley, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate it. After the debate, turn to CNN for analysis with Anderson Cooper and Dana Bash. That begins tonight at 11 Eastern. Just in new comments from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy with roughly three days until a government shutdown. Will we see a deal to stop what seems to be likely on the way? Plus, the day in court for Democratic Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey and his wife, Menendez, is planning to address his colleagues on Capitol Hill soon at least. I think it's 30 Democrats in the Senate have called on him to resign. We're going to talk about this approach next. Just in, some new comments from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Capitol Hill about this government funding fight, including the new strategy he is backing, a short-term continuing resolution that insists on funding for border security. Here is what Speaker McCarthy had to say. Don't think money solves the problem, because what has happened here, it's been the president's policies that has made the border wide open. And I've worked with um, cinema and others. There are Democrat elected members who want the border secure as well, because they see what's happening to their own states. This is why I don't understand why the president would ignore this problem continue when both sides are the ask, uh, uh, both, uh, both sides are asking to help solve this problem together. So- You see the countdown clock there, three days, six hours, 37 minutes, 30 seconds. Congress uh, has less than four days to go until the government runs out of funding and a shutdown goes into effect. In our Law and Justice lead today, Democratic Senator Bob Menendez of the Garden State of New Jersey pleaded not guilty to corruption-related charges in a federal courtroom. The senator and his wife are accused of accepting hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes. At least 30 of his fellow Senate Democrats have called upon him to resign. CNN's Paula Reed joins me now from New York, across the river from New Jersey. Paula, walk us through what happened in court today. 
Well, Jake, this was the first hearing for the senator and his wife since those charges were filed last week. They both entered pleas of not guilty through their respective attorneys. They're also both expected to relinquish their personal passports, but the senator will be allowed to keep his official passport for any travel related to his day job as a senior lawmaker. Now, they declined to answer any questions as they were exiting federal court today, but they are expected to be back here at federal court early next week for their first hearing before the judge who will handle this case through what is expected to be a trial. And Paula, a, a number of uh, a growing number of Menendez's Democratic colleagues, 30 yeah. uh, out of uh, 50 uh, are calling for his resignation. Um, he's going to address them tomorrow. Yeah, it could be a bit of an awkward meeting, Jake. As you just noted, more than half of his Democratic Senate colleagues are calling for him to resign. So far, he has remained defiant, even in the wake of these calls for him to step down. We expect also tomorrow during this meeting that Senator Cardin will be named the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, a post that Menendez had to vacate after this indictment. But it is likely that his colleagues are going to have a lot of tough questions for him in the wake of these charges. How does this case differ from some of the public corruption cases that we've seen in the past? Ted Stevens, Governor McDonnell, another one against Menendez, uh, John Edwards, um, all of which, all of which fell apart. Exactly. Even when the public integrity section of the Justice Department was able to get a conviction, for example, the governor, Bob McDonald, the Supreme Court uh, overturned that, made it really difficult for them to really get convictions when they are accusing politicians of taking either gifts or possible bribes in exchange for wielding political influence. This is something that Menendez has uh, pointed to repeatedly over the past few days, noting that he has previously been charged and was not convicted. But one of the key differences with this case, Jake, is the fact that at the heart of this case, is the accusation that the senator shared sensitive information with a foreign government against U.S. interests. That is really a distinguishing factor from those other cases and part of why this case is so serious and likely why so many of his colleagues are calling for him to step down. Paula Reed, thanks so much. Police say this wild night of straight lawlessness in my beloved hometown of Philadelphia was a coordinated crime. What else are they now saying about the looting on Chestnut and Walnut Streets? That's next. In our national lead, this is what downtown Philly looked like last night when a crowd of people ransacked an Apple store, a Foot Locker, a Lululemon, and several other businesses in Center City. The looting was so bad... Philadelphia closed all of its liquor stores today after 18 of them were broken into. More than 50 people, including three teenagers, have been arrested in what police suspect was a coordinated crime spree. CNN's Danny Freeman is in Philadelphia's Center City District right now. Danny, this all happened about 30 minutes after some peaceful protests, uh, according apparently completely separate, had ended. 
That's right, Jake. And because of that, it was really a frustrating and uh, troublesome night here in Philadelphia for so many people. Police reporting that there were more than 70 incidents related to looting last night. And as you said, it was all after really peaceful protests concerning that court decision about an officer who killed uh, Eddie Irizarry back in August. But police wanted to make something very clear last night and today that they will continue to arrest those who were responsible for the looting and also that the looters were not protesters. They were, as police called them, criminal opportunists. So, Jake, here's how this all started. Basically, it started around 8 p.m., like you said, about 30 or 40 minutes after that protest uh, by City Hall had concluded. Then looters descended on a footlocker right here behind me in Center City. Police arrived, but then those people swarmed away. Uh, then they went to a Lululemon, an Apple store, and then other parts of Philadelphia as well. Jake, police say that some of the people uh, may have spread the word about looting last night over social media and even suggested there may have been a caravan of a select group of people who were going to specific spots in Philadelphia. Uh, police saying incredibly disrespectful and disgusting acts against uh, citizens here in the city. But again, many arrests. And Jake, we're seeing more Philadelphia police resources tonight out in the city behind us. Jake? And according to the Philly police, um, there have been more than 820 retail thefts in the city in just the last two weeks, more than 820. Have police or city officials talked about how they plan to tackle this? Yeah, Jake, retail theft has been something that Philadelphia police have been dealing with, not just in the past two weeks, but for a little while now, especially in this center city district. What I'll say is that uh, police were asked basically if they gave enough heads up to these businesses in center city that there might be a concern about looting. The managing director acknowledged they could have done better to communicate that with uh, businesses and the business community, but it is something that they have clearly stated, especially after last night. Uh, it is a priority for them moving forward. Jake. All right, Danny Freeman in Philly. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. The theft and organized crime we saw in Philly last night is a reason why Target says it will close at least nine of its stores in several major cities. Two in Seattle, Washington, three in Portland, Oregon, three in Oakland and San Francisco and California, and one in New York City. CNN's Veronica Miracle is following the story. Veronica, is crime really the main reason why Target is closing these specific stores? Well, Jake, there is some skepticism whether big box retailers are using crime as an excuse to close down stores that aren't doing well. But I will tell you, at least here at this San Francisco Target, uh, we spoke to a lot of regulars and they say they believe that crime is the reason for at least this store closure. I spoke with a man who's lived across the street for three years and he says on a regular basis every day he sees multiple people running out of the store with stolen items. Take a listen to his firsthand account. I see tons of homeless come up in here every single day. I can't say that everyone's stealing, but I would say a majority of them, they come in here just to steal, to resell it, to do whatever they do with the money. A Target did give us a statement saying that uh, before they made this decision, they invested heavily in strategies to prevent and stop theft and organized retail crime by adding more security team members, using third-party guard services, and implementing theft deterrent tools across their business. But, Jake, ultimately, it was not enough to stop those nine stores from being shut down. Uh, this all does align with new data just released by the National Retail Federation, which reports that 28% of retailers are closing locations due to crime. Jake? Do we know how these closures in general impact the local economies for the surrounding communities? 
Well, just like food deserts, these people are now going to have to leave this area. They're going to have to go to other locations. They'll have to travel farther. And then those remaining stores are going to get busier. Uh, and then we're already seeing an impact here. So these store hours have changed just today here. It's supposed to open at 9. They opened at 10. So there was a line of cars of people waiting, people being turned away. We understand that this is the same situation that happened in New York at one of the Target stores as well. Now, I did go inside. I spoke to an employee and I asked her what she plans on doing. She told me that she just found out about this store closure last night, the same time as the general public, and that employees are being given the option to move to other store locations. Jake. All right, Veronica Miracle in San Francisco. Thanks so much. Canada has a problem, a growing international problem. It started with an embarrassing standing ovation for a Ukrainian veteran who, it turns out, had fought with the wrong side in World War II. The resignation that followed and the apology and what could be next in this grim saga, that's coming up. Back to our world lead and an apology today from Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for a quote, deeply embarrassing act by the Canadian government a few days ago. It all started last Friday when Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the Canadian Parliament in Ottawa during the ceremony. The Speaker of Parliament introduced a 98-year-old Ukrainian World War II veteran who was watching from the gallery. He's a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero. Yaroslav Hanka got a prolonged standing ovation from the crowd, which, to be fair presumably did not know anything about him at the time. Hanka even got a raised fist gesture of respect from President Zelensky, who definitely did not know anything about him at the time. Here is the problem, and it's a doozy. Hanka, in World War II, fought for what it's fair to say was the wrong side. Hanka belonged to a Ukrainian unit that swore loyalty to the Nazis. A Canadian human rights organization says Hanka's unit, quote, was responsible for the mass murder of innocent civilians with a level of brutality and malice that is unimaginable. CNN's Paula Newton is following the scandal for us from our Canadian Bureau and its fallout, which is considerable and now has both political and legal ramifications. Paula, I mean, oh, Canada, this is embarrassing. How did it even happen? It is beyond embarrassing, Jake. Most people have attached the word shameful to this and for good reason. How did it happen? One was an error in vetting, but let's be clear. This wasn't just that they didn't vet him pro uh, properly. This is a matter of historical ignorance. And many people in Canada are now saying that as well. The speaker himself resigned, but then Prime Minister Justin Trudeau coming out just a few hours ago and apologizing. But more than that, Jake, he made the point that this was incredibly troubling for Ukraine itself and does not help their ongoing battle with Russia. Listen. It is extremely troubling to think that this egregious error is being politicized by Russia and its supporters to provide false propaganda about what Ukraine is fighting for. I mean, this really gave Russia a propaganda win, and many know it, especially since Russia used the pretense, of course, denazifying Ukraine in order to justify their invasion in the first place. Jay? And now Poland wants to extradite Hanka. 
Listen, Poland, the Polish government confirmed to CNN uh, that they are in fact looking at any evidence that they may have in order to finally bring this man to justice if indeed it proves to be true that he uh, committed any war crimes and pledged allegiance to Adolf Hitler. What's interesting here, and Jewish groups in Canada say absolutely appalling, is that they've been fighting for decades to have those Holocaust records made public. Listen. And so by not doing the right thing in the past, it led to this absolute international disaster today. And so let's move forward. Um, and, and the government needs to show leadership on this. And it needs to be done yesterday. It's really unfair to everyone. Um, and again, least of all to our to our vets who, who fought against the Nazis. You know, B'nai B'rith says, look, if this had happened decades ago, we would have the evidence we needed to know that a man like this, perhaps a former Nazi, um, was living quietly in uh, northern Ontario in Canada. Um, at issue here, I've asked the Justice Department here in Canada, they refuse to comment except to tell me that we don't have an extradition. Canada does not have an extradition treaty with Poland. I don't know why that's relevant, Jake. Uh, there are other ways to extradite people. It just involves more paperwork. But we'll continue to follow this story, especially where it concerns Poland and trying to get that evidence. Yikes. Paula Newton, thanks so much. Coming up next, one of the most tragic issues facing the United States, one that needs our attention. I need you to hear this one. We'll be right back. Powerful stuff. Secretary of Veterans Affairs Dennis McDonough joins us now. So tell us about how this particular program came about. How'd you get Catherine uh, Bigelow involved? I mean, that's she's a director of some serious yeah. stature. Well, our partners at the Ad Council made that happen. And the, I think that a person of her stature wanting to make sure that she's involved in an effort like this underscores the fact that uh, the whole country has a role to play, that suicide is preventable. Uh, and we just got to make sure that we're exercising every option that we have to do that. But uh, her willingness to do this speaks to the American people's dedication to making sure we're doing right by our vets. So um, I've been a journalist for a few decades now. I've been doing this show for 10 years. That number uh, of suicides by veterans a day has gone down. Is, to what do you attribute that? Well, it's, it's going down, uh, and we attribute to a lot of things. And a leading uh, set of issues relate to the fact that our communities recognize that this is a challenge for all of us. Due to a lot of interest on Capitol Hill, we're now investing in community partners, places that know their veterans best, to make sure that they're reaching out to them, not waiting for a crisis, directing veterans to places like va.gov reach, where they can uh, get scientifically proven interventions and knowledge now before a crisis so that they're ready. But the bottom line is communities, families, battle buddies, VA, uh, everybody's looking out for our vets, so we're getting better at it. But you know what, Jake? We have a long way to go. Yeah, let's talk about that because um, there was a Senate hearing uh, a few days ago of the Veterans Affairs Committee, uh, and they talked a lot about, and rightly so, a VA, recent VA Inspector General's report uh, slamming the handling um, in 2021, I believe it was, of a suicidal, suicidal veteran in Texas who reached the Veterans Crisis Line via text. He was a patient who had a history of PTSD, attention deficit disorder, depressive disorder, alcohol use. The patient texted uh, somebody at the VA um, and the VA responder did not notify anybody. 
in the person's family or alert first responders, didn't change from text to phone. The patient did die by suicide within an hour of the last text. Um, the report brought the scathing response from your fellow Democrat, Senator John Tester, uh, at the hearing. Take a listen. This is really frustrating for me to say, but we got to do better. We just got to do better. This is just, it's, this isn't saleable. It's keeping people out of our military when we need more people in our military. It's ruining lives. It's ruining families. And so we all need to work together to make sure this happens. I'm sure you agree you got to do better. What are you going to do to make sure you do? Well, first of all, obviously, we're incredibly saddened by this incident. And our heart goes out to the family of that veteran, the friends of that veteran. And the first thing that we are going to do is learn every lesson we can from this. We're really grateful for the inspector general digging into this. We've concurred with each of his uh, recommendations for us, and we've begun implementing those with great urgency to ensure that we don't repeat that kind of incident. And we are seeing some evidence that uh, we are making good progress on the veterans crisis line. Since we shortened it to 988, and as a veteran, if you're in crisis today, they need only dial 988 and press 1, and they'll be in touch with our crisis responders. Since we changed that number to just those three digits, 988, we've seen an increase in 15% in the number of calls, texts, and chats uh, at the veteran crisis line. Right. The, time to, the time to respond, under 10 seconds. So we're getting better at this. We recognize every second counts. And when a, an incident like this one, uh, as heartbreaking as it is, occurs, we have to learn every lesson from it. Well, one of the senators in that hearing said that there was an individual at the VA, the director of that program, who tried to interfere in the inspector general's report. And that person still works for the VA. It might have been uh, removed from the directorship. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I'm very familiar with the IG report. And yeah. we take uh, like the IG as a critical partner to VA. Uh, and to our success at VA. So we take his reports very, very seriously. So we're digging into that report. As I said, we've concurred with each of the recommendations and we're moving out with urgency on them. Most importantly, if there is anybody watching right now who is a veteran or who loves a veteran or cares about a veteran who needs help, call 988. Call 988, press one. If you are in crisis and you want to see somebody under a new law, you can go to a VA hospital or to any healthcare facility, whether or not you're enrolled at VA, and you can get emergency mental health care today. 32,000, more than 32,000 veterans have availed themselves of that opportunity since we started doing that earlier this year. It's a bipartisan law enacted by Congress. Mr. Takano uh, wrote that law in the, in the House. It's a very good tool. 32,000 vets have availed themselves of it. Call us at 988, press 1. Visit any health care facility and we'll get you covered. All right, Secretary of the Department of Veterans Affairs, Dennis McDonough, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. We're going to squeeze in a quick commercial. We'll be right back. Some breaking news into CNN. The judge overseeing the special counsel's 2020 election interfer interference case against Donald Trump here in Washington, D.C., will not recuse herself from the case. CNN's Evan Pettis is standing by. Evan, another loss for Trump's team. 
That's right, Jake. And look, this was always a long shot case uh, uh, argument by the by the former president and his legal team. Judges almost never recuse themselves, uh, except in very extraordinary circumstances. And here, the judge said uh, that the former president's case is not, or his arguments is not really reached that standard. They say uh, the judge said that uh, her statements from the bench in previous sentencings uh, does not really mean that she cannot be. Uh, uh, impartial in, in, in overseeing this case. This is something that the former president and his legal team had said was the reason why the public needs to have confidence that this case was going to be handled impartially. Jake? Evan Perez, thank you so much. Our coverage continues now with Pamela Brown in for Wolf Blitzer, but still in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.